Hey, good morning. Welcome to Westbridge Church. My name is Jeremiah, and I'm one of the pastors here. It's awesome to have you here with us today. Uh, hello to those of you joining us on our online campus as well. Great to have you participating through that venue. And to those of you in our parent viewing rooms, that's a great option. If you have small children, you prefer to keep with you during the service. And uh, we have been in this series uh, around Lent, and it's been a lot of fun. And um, Really, this idea of this Lenten uh, journey has been, uh, Lent is this word, this ancient word that really just means the lengthening, the lengthening of days, or it's a word that they used for spring. And so we said that uh, in the very beginning of this series, Lent season is really uh, a, a spring cleaning for our souls that, um, you know, we don't like to think about spring cleaning uh, when it relates to our garage, but I know that's coming up for us. And at the same time, uh, this is a spring cleaning to sort of declutter some of the things that are going on in our heart and our soul, empty out some of those things. It's why we spend uh, this season saying, I'm going to stop doing something, and then I'm going to uh, take this season and fill it with something. So this series, Empty and Filled, is about this season where we anticipate Easter, where we spend some time uh, looking at the meaning of Lent and what we can do to really make the most of this season. And so we kicked off this series talking about that, and I, and I love this because uh, there are uh, people like me who grew up without any type of background related to Lent. And so for me, it was just like, okay, my friends have a dirty forehead this one Wednesday out of the year, and I don't know what's going on with that. And then some of you grew up practicing Lent, but you never knew why. So for you, it was just like, yeah, we do, we, you know, we eat fish on Fridays and that's great. I don't know. And, uh, and I can even remember growing up as a kid where uh, a lot of my friends who were uh, Catholic or Lutheran or who practiced Lent uh, would be like, dude, we're going to McDonald's because they serve filet of fish during the season. And I'm like, I have no idea why, but that sounds great. Let's go get a filet of fish from McDonald's. And, uh, and so this has been a really cool sort of uh, journey for us over the last several weeks to go through this together and help us understand what this is all about. And uh, we kicked it off the very first week saying, man, this is a season where we, we empty ourselves of something, we allow God to fill us, and we move with anticipation towards Easter when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus and all that that means. And then uh, the second week, uh, Eli, one of our pastors, talked about prayer and the practice of prayer and how we can use this season to, as, a, as a time to focus in on this practice of prayer and that it connects us to God, that it syncs up our heart with God's. Uh, and then the, the third week, we talked about the application of Scripture. How do we read the Bible and apply it to our lives in a way where it makes a difference, where it's not just checking a box, but we're actually uh, absorbing what we're reading and applying it to our lives. And then uh, my buddy Paul came and spoke uh, a couple of weeks ago and talked about repentance and how repentance is really this idea of not what I'm leaving behind as much as what I'm moving toward, that uh, the kingdom of God is something we can participate in, that we get to be a part of it here and now. And then last week we talked about this, uh, the kingdom of God, and we're talking about that, it's now but not yet, right? It's, it's this thing that we're waiting and anticipating. And that Easter is this sort of microcosm of really our whole life, that there's, there's this um, waiting, and when we're waiting, God is working. And he's, and he's working for the good. But in the meantime, we can participate in God's kingdom here and now. And so I just think this has just been an incredible series for us so far as a church. And uh, we've got today, and then next Sunday, we'll wrap up this series. And then Easter is two weeks away. Easter is two weeks from today, and, and you heard him say it on the video. We've got five Easter experiences, and the reason for that is because we want you to be able to invite your friends. We want you to be able to invite your, uh, your neighbors, your coworkers, your family members, and we want to make sure that we open up plenty of seats for plenty of people. Uh, and so if you were watching that and thought, you know what, I do want to serve on Easter somewhere, uh, you can go to westbridgechurch.com Easter, or you can even just write Easter serve on the back of your connection card and drop it into one of those uh, giving stations on your way out, and we'll make sure and get in touch with you this week and help 
help you get connected. And that doesn't mean you're joining a team permanently. It just means I will serve somewhere during one of the Easter services to make room for all the people that are going to be showing up here. And so I'm excited. Uh, with Easter two weeks away, we're anticipating uh, this is an opportunity for us to remember collectively all that the resurrection of Jesus means for us. And so today, I want to look at a story specifically from uh, the eyewitness named John. John was a guy who traveled with Jesus. He was one of his 12 disciples. Uh, in fact, he was sort of in this um, circle of three guys that Jesus was really, really close with. Uh, and John is a guy who he writes his own eyewitness account of his experience with Jesus. And it's funny because when he writes it, he actually writes it, uh, he writes himself in as the one Jesus loved, which I don't know if that's just some deep insecurity in John or what, but he's just like, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm referring to myself as the one Jesus loved. But uh, there is this season called Passover. And if you lived in uh, Jerusalem, if you were a Jewish person in the first century, the, the Jewish people would celebrate their, uh, their deliverance out of slavery in Egypt hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. And every year they had a celebration to remember that. And it's called Passover. And here is what John tells us about this Passover with Jesus. So we pick this up in John chapter 13. He's sharing his eyewitness account, and he says, Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them <coughs> Excuse me, to the very end. It was time for supper. This would be the last time that Jesus would actually have supper with his disciples before his uh, arrest and his death and resurrection. And so oftentimes, as a result of that, this is referred to as the Last Supper. And if you've ever seen pictures of this, it kind of looks, uh, in fact, there's a famous painting called The Last Supper that was painted by Leonardo da Vinci in the 1400s. And here's that picture, and you've probably seen this picture before. It's a famous painting. And yet what's uh, sort of ironic about that is that it looks very ornate, and they're all kind of uh, sitting in this big row at this elegant table, and of course, Jesus is center. It almost looks like the head table at a wedding. And it's like the bride and groom are center, you know, and, uh, and, and that's what this looks like. It's like this incredibly ornate, organized thing. And I think it's interesting because I think religion has a habit of taking simple, ordinary things and trying to make them more ornate and glamorous than they really are. And so I tried to find a more simple picture of what this might have looked like. And there's actually uh, another painting, and it's simply called The Upper Room. And here's what that looks like. The upper room, this is, I feel like this is a much better portrayal of what this could have looked like. This is a pretty good depiction of what the upper room could have looked like. And perhaps you've heard this phrase before, the upper room, and it says, you know, they were together in the upper room. And you're like, well, what is that? And Well, I, I have it on good authority that it's called that because it was above another room. So you're like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, okay. Uh, they were more than likely sitting in a circle, right? And, and it wasn't this glamorous table. It was kind of lounging around, and, uh, and they're in a circle, and Jesus is there, and uh, they're just kind of lounging around to eat. And Jesus tells us, or John tells us, rather, that it's time for supper. And Jesus and his disciples, they're obviously about to share a meal together. And Jesus had delegated responsibilities to his disciples. Uh, we, we discover through Luke's account that Jesus had told them to go and rent this room and prepare the meal. And so he had delegated these responsibilities to his disciples, and uh, all of a sudden, they get there, they're ready for dinner, and here's what John tells us. It was time for supper. And the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything, and that he had come from God and would return to God. So this is John's version of guess who's coming to dinner. John wants us to know who is around the table. 
John wants us to know all the faces around the table, and, and he wants to give us an exactly a full picture of exactly who is sitting around this table with Jesus. And can I tell you, it's not 12 disciples who are all best buds. It's not even 12 disciples who all uh, see things the same way, who agree on everything, who see the world through the same lens. It's not 12, 12 disciples who are like, uh, man, you know, even though we might have some differences, we're really good with each other. This is 12 disciples who come from very different backgrounds. Who is around the table at this Last Supper is a really big deal. Let me tell you, you had Judas at the table. Now, He's sitting there eating with Jesus. And my guess is that you don't have a lot of friends named Judas. Why is that? It's an easy name to spell. I don't know why we don't have a lot of friends named Judas. We've got friends named John, and we've got friends named Peter, and we, got, you know, we, we have friends named everything. But for some reason, no one names their kid Judas or Adolf. Why is that? And here's what we know. Like, you don't have to be a church person to know Judas is just a name that even if I don't have any church background, we associate it with betrayal because that's, that's where this story goes. Judas was willing to work a deal with the religious leaders of the day to make sure that uh, he got paid to hand Jesus over to the religious leaders. And so he was the one who, he struck a deal with them. He told them, here's where Jesus is going to be. Here's our itinerary. Here's the best time to arrest him. And the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders who actually have no authority... They illegally arrest Jesus, illegally try him, and then they bring him to uh, the Roman uh, governor to have him executed. And right there in the thick of it all is a guy named Judas. And he's directly responsible for the arrest and the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus. And he's sitting there at the table. He's eating with Jesus. Now think about that for just a second. Then you have another guy, another guy named Peter. Right? And, and uh, he's sitting at the table. Oh, well, there's churches named after Peter. He's got to be a pretty good dude, right? Yes and no. He's got his moments. Uh, when you read the stories of Peter from the eyewitness accounts, you discover that he's almost always portrayed as this somewhat impetuous, uh, kind of uh, no-filter type of a guy. And he, he tells Jesus, uh, on this very day when they're having this uh, dinner, he tells Jesus, man, Jesus, I'm with you forever. I'm with you to the end. Even if you die, I'm with you. I, man, I am your ride or die. And Jesus goes, well, hold that thought, Peter, because not too long from now, you're actually going to deny that you even know me. And, and I'm not talking like when you were a teenager and you just started dating a girl, but you haven't really defined the relationship yet, right? And, and then all of a sudden you meet one of her friends and rather than introduce you as her boyfriend, she just introduces you as her friend. And you're like, wow, that stings a little. Okay, now I know where I stand. I'm not talking like that. I'm talking flat out denial that I even know him. Peter was, people said to Peter, hey, you're with Jesus, right? You're with that guy. And he's like, I never knew him. I, I don't know what you're talking about. I've never met the man. And here's what we know. John actually tells us that Peter got angry at even the, the accusation. He was so worried of guilt by association. And we know that Peter was actually following Jesus at a little bit of a distance, waiting to see what would happen to him. And he's in this courtyard. And based on the geography, it's very, very likely that the courtyard is outside of the cell where Jesus is being questioned and where he's being held. Which means that it's very likely that Jesus would have actually overheard Peter denying him to the people. And so that's Peter, and he's at dinner with Jesus. 
Then you got a guy named Thomas. Now, uh, you know, Thomas is another guy around the table. And you're like, well, what's wrong with Thomas? My dad's name is Tom. Uh, listen, nothing wrong with Thomas, right? But he's the friend who typically said what everyone was thinking but was too afraid to say. You know that friend? And he was super, like, skeptical and cynical. And so uh, there's one point in, in John where uh, John, Jesus is speaking, and he's like, one day I'm going to go to the Father, and I'm going to come back again, and, and I'm going to bring you to where I am, but you can't go with me yet. And, 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 like, Thomas is the guy that, like, raises his hand, and he's like, we don't know what you're talking about. I like Thomas. And Thomas, uh, he, he's this guy, he's like, he's just skeptical. He's like, I won't see it unless I believe it. In fact... They, they had rented this upper room for a, a period of time, and the next day they were back in the upper room, and they were there waiting to see what was going to happen because Jesus was being arrested and he was being put to death. And they were in that upper room waiting, and they were wondering what was going on. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to them. And it just so happened Thomas wasn't there. And so they started to tell Thomas, hey, Jesus rose from the dead. We've seen him. And he's like, yeah, I don't believe it. They're like, Thomas, we're not lying. And he goes, unless I see the wounds in his hands and his feet, unless I touch the, his side where the spear uh, entered him, I, I won't believe it. That's Thomas. Just skeptical, just cynical. And, and that's okay to be skeptical, but I just want you to know that's exactly who's sitting at the table. And he's there. He's having dinner with Jesus. Then you got this guy named Matthew. Matthew is a tax collector. And if you've ever read any of the eyewitness accounts, I, I love the way that they write this, especially uh, it, through, the, through these eyewitness accounts. They, they say Jesus would often meet with sinners and tax collectors. Because tax collectors, they were like, they had their own category of sinner. Like if you were a sinner, you went to bed at night and you went, at least I'm not a tax collector. <laughs> That's how bad they were. And here's why. The Roman Empire is the ruling superpower of the day. And you have Caesar, you have Rome, and they enter into uh, the nation of Israel. They take it over, conquer it, and they occupy it. But the way that they worked with such a vast empire is they, they put people in charge of these different uh, sort of districts and states. And they're all a part of the Roman Empire that answered to Caesar, and yet they would have their own governor, sometimes their own king that would rule over a certain region. And so you have this region of Jerusalem, and the way that they collected taxes and paid for things was they would actually employ Jewish people to be the tax collectors, to be the enforcers of their uh, taxation on the people. And so if you were a Jewish tax collector, you were hated by the people because you were not only working for the people that were occupying, who took over your nation and were occupying your nation, but you had free license to cheat your fellow countrymen to line your own pockets. And so tax collectors became very, very wealthy at the expense of their own countrymen. That was Matthew. And Matthew is having dinner with Jesus. You know who else is at the table? A guy named Simon, and Simon is a zealot. Now, here's what that means. Simon is the exact opposite of Matthew. So this is, this is like two totally opposite ends of the spectrum, having dinner together with Jesus. Simon believed that we should actually pick up the sword, go to war, overthrow the Roman Empire through might and power and military. You know, at the edge of the sword, we're going to topple these guys. That was Simon. Matthew worked for him. <laughs> and they're together at the table with Jesus. Think about that. So here's just some of the faces around the table. You've got Judas, betrayal. You've got um, Peter, rejection. You've got uh, Thomas, skepticism. You've got Matthew, greed. You've got uh, Simon, intense nationalism. 
And they're all around the table. And sometimes I think we glamorize the Last Supper. We look at the picture by Leonardo da Vinci and we think, well, this must have been what it have been like. It would have been awesome to be around the table with Jesus, to be one of those guys. And I'm not so sure that the guys at the table felt that way. I think it felt a little bit more like being at dinner with Will Smith and Chris Rock. <laughs> Too soon? couldn't resist. <laughs> but think about this. this. This should carry some weight in our minds. This should really carry some weight in our minds. Can you imagine, just for a moment, think about this, the emotion that you have felt when you have crossed paths with someone who has hurt you. When you've crossed paths accidentally with someone who's rejected you, with someone who you feel has betrayed you in some way, some, somehow they have, they have hurt you. And let's just be honest. I've bumped into some of you uh, around town, and you weren't at church last Sunday, and you're like, don't go down that aisle. Jeremiah's down there. <laughs> and, all, and we bump into each other, and you're like, oh, hey, I'm sorry I wasn't there last week. And it's like you think I'm keeping track on some big chart with stars on it or something. <laughs> Listen, if, we, if you ever bump into me, like in a hardware store or... Let's be honest, you ain't bumping to me in a hardware store. Uh, Target, let's say. And you're like, man, I wasn't there last week. Like, I'm not going to know. Just be like, hey, last week, right here. It's all good. But what about the real times when you run into somebody who you're like, oh, man, I do not want to see them. When you run into your ex when you run into somebody who betrayed you, somebody who hurt you, somebody who's wounded you, could we, could we just be honest enough to admit that at the very least, it stirs something up inside of us emotionally that is just like, oh, dramatic effect. <laughs> can we just be honest enough to admit that it, 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 something's going on emotionally when you, when you come across somebody who has somehow wounded you and hurt you where you're struggling to forgive? Jesus had him at the table. Think about that. What about the people who, they don't see life the way that you see life? What about the people who are on the opposite end of the spectrum? What about the people who just have a different worldview than you? And you're just like, I don't know how anybody could think the way that those people think. And it's because you don't see life through the lens that they see life through, but you're just like, man, I, just, I don't get it. Jesus had him around the table. He had them around the table. And based on what Jesus says to them, it's pretty obvious that he's not oblivious to the tension. It's pretty obvious that he's very aware of the tension around the table. And yet, here's what he did. Now that you know exactly who's around this table, now that you know the dynamic that's going on, look at what Jesus did. John tells us. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. And then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. I wish that I could tell you that as a reverend, which is what I am, says it on my mail sometimes. <laughs> I wish I could tell you that I walk into every situation ready to do that. But I'll be honest with you, I don't. I, I walk into some situations defensive. I walk into some situations self-absorbed. I walk into some situations uh, just with my own interest in mind, with my own agenda in mind. I walk into some situations authoritative. I walk into some situations, and I just, I'm more worried about what people will think of me than, it's just, this is being honest. 
I don't walk into every situation going, how can I serve you? But Jesus looks around the table and he decides this is exactly what needs to happen. I'm going to wash their feet. And most of you have probably never washed someone else's feet. And you're probably thinking, no, and I don't ever plan to. But we're going to have our ushers come in and we're going to wash each other's feet today. (laughs) Just kidding. But this is the cultural norm. So this is just normal in their day and age. If you showed up to someone's house for dinner, there would, at the very least, if they, if they were not wealthy enough to have servants, at the very least, they would provide a basin of water at their door. And when you showed up, you would at least, as a show of hospitality and honor to your guests, you would have a basin there for people to wash their own feet and to dry their own feet because typically they were not sitting in chairs at a dining room table. They were actually lounging around. And so your feet are up next to people. And when you live in a uh, sort of sandal-walking dirt road culture, your feet get pretty messy. And even when you're not walking, the main sort of mode of transportation are livestock, right? Camels, donkeys, horses, and those vehicles leave exhaust. And so when you're walking in sandals on dirt road and other things, and you show up to someone's house, you would wash your feet. Now, even, even if you were a very poor household and didn't have servants, you'd provide that. But if you had even a servant or, or multiple servants, there would be a servant there who would wash your feet and dry your feet to prepare you as a show of hospitality to your guests for dinner. And usually that job, that role, was reserved for the lowest servant in the household. Whoever was the last in line, whoever was the lowliest servant in the household, that was their job. And it was reserved for that person. And that's why Jesus picked up the towel And he washed his disciples' feet. And when he did, here's what you need to know. Jesus turned the social structure upside down. See, this wasn't normal for somebody in charge, for the rabbi, the teacher, to wash his disciples' feet. In fact, it wasn't like in their minds they were thinking, oh, that's that's really considerate of you, Jesus. Thank you. What a nice thing to do. No, this is shocking. This This is Jesus sending a message. He's saying, look, the way that you thought about things is changing from here on out. Things are going to be different. This is not just what Jesus the rabbi, this is not what he should have been doing. And he had delegated everything else. He had already delegated the room reservation. He had already de- delegated the meal preparation. And you kind of wonder, like, if, if the disciples were sitting there going, oh, man, we forgot the foot washing. Ah, oh, of course. Oh, we got the room ready. We got the meal ready. We should have done this. And now Jesus is doing it. Ah, oh. Instead, Jesus actually explains his actions. Listen to what he says to them. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again and sat down and asked, do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, because that's what I am. Now, it's interesting. Jesus doesn't say, no, 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 I'm not that. I don't have any authority. He goes, yep, I absolutely am teacher and Lord. That's exactly what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. Jesus introduces us to the way of the towel. And If you're going to be a follower of the way of Jesus, then you have to be a follower of the way of the towel. And here's what I mean. Jesus did not delegate the foot washing. Think about that. Jesus didn't delegate it. We know that Jesus delegated the meal preparation. We know that Jesus delegated the room reservation. 
But when it came time for foot washing, it's not like Jesus was sitting there going, uh, guys, your rabbi is here with dirty feet. Hello. He did it on purpose. Jesus had intentionally not delegated the foot washing because he wanted to personally show his disciples what it meant to live the way of the towel, what it meant to take the lowliest position, to deal with the messiest parts of someone and still ascribe worth and value to them, to not have to elevate yourself in every situation. We would prefer that Jesus would have assigned a servant because we're to follow his example. And I'd rather have somebody else do that. I don't want to be the one to serve. And that reminds us, we, we are to behave in such a way that we enter into every room as the lowest, that we come under and we serve other people and we lift them up. In fact, there's a really interesting response from Peter. John says, here's, here's how Peter reacted. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't understand now what I'm doing, but someday you will. No, Peter replied, you will never, ever wash my feet. And when you hear this, it's easy to think, oh, Peter's just being a little stubborn, right? Like, come on, chill out, Peter. Like, stay in your lane. What's the, what's, what's the problem here? But let's, let's just look at this cultural moment that they're in for just a minute. When you have a rabbi, your goal is not simply to learn from that rabbi, to gain information and to just uh, learn some knowledge and then try to apply that to your life. And it's kind of like, uh, you know, in school, it's like, okay, give me all the knowledge and I'll kind of take what I need to from it and I'll leave the rest. That isn't how you, uh, that, that's not how you work when you are following a rabbi. When you're following a rabbi, it's, I'm going to copy everything that you do. I'm going to mimic everything that you do. If you do something, I'm going to do it. And the way that you do it is the way that I'm going to do it. And the way that you interpret something is the way I'm going to interpret something. My whole, the reason I picked you as my rabbi is because I want to follow you. I want to live my life like you. I want to pattern my life after you. So that's one day when you're gone, I will be a rabbi in the exact same way, in the exact same vein that my life will mimic and mirror yours. That is how you follow a rabbi in the, in, the, in the first century. And so that should really color this in for us a little bit. Peter doesn't want Jesus to wash his feet because his whole life is about patterning himself after his rabbi. Jesus, I don't want you to wash my feet because that means any environment that I go into, you're saying that I have to enter into that as the lowest. You're saying I'm supposed to enter into that with a towel. I'm supposed to enter into any room and I can't elevate myself. Now i got to come in and serve other people, and I'm not really quite so sure that's really the life I want to live. The season that we're in, this season of Lent, is a season where we intentionally take time and pause and reflect on the way of Jesus. And my prayer during this season is that we take some time to reflect on the way of the towel, on, on our perspective to serving other people, because I think there are a lot of followers of Jesus who are at a bit of a crossroads when it comes to the way of the towel. And I, I think that we love the salvation part. We love the, we love the eternal life part. We're like, man, that part is so cool. The eternal life, the, the heaven part, love it. Great, good stuff. The towel part, uh, I don't know if I'm really keen on that part. And sometimes, unintentionally, we tend to treat the, the way of Jesus a little bit more like the buffet line at the cafeteria. Like, oh, I love the roast beef. I love the mashed potatoes. Ooh, green beans. No, thanks. Love the salvation, love the eternal life. I think I'm going to skip the serving part. <laughs> but this is the way of the towel. 
And uh, primarily, we understand that the, the kingdom of heaven is not simply just a place we're trying to get to when we die, but it is something we enter into here and now. And if you're going to enter into this invitation to be a part of the kingdom of heaven here and now, you have to pick up the towel. That's the way of Jesus, is the way of the towel. And, and as you're sort of processing what that means for you personally, as you're thinking through that, let me offer you a modern-day story about what that looks like. Uh, many of you may be aware of an author named Simon Sinek. Simon Sinek has uh, written several books, and he's done TED Talks, and has written a lot of things on leadership and uh, sort of organizational leadership. And he has a book called Leaders Eat Last. And in this book, he tells a story about he, where he was hired uh, to go into uh, an Air Force base in Afghanistan. And so he was going to go there, him and his crew, for 24 hours. He's going to give them uh, some talks on, uh, you know, team and unity and leadership, and then fly home. Can't tell his family where he's at. That's part of the deal. Uh, but he'll be back the next day. It's just a quick 24-hour. We're going to fly you in. We're going to bring you back. On their way in, they come under a rocket attack. And so uh, he's sort of freaked out, thinking, oh, man, this was a huge mistake. I'm going to die. They eventually do make it, and they land at the base. But he, he's rattled. He's had this sort of traumatic experience, and it's kind of overwhelming for him. He's stressed out. And, and, and so he's able to calm his nerves. He, he does the thing that he's there to do. Uh, he gives his speech to the troops and uh, sort of talks to them about uh, unity and team and leadership. And uh, that's his, his whole shtick. And then, and then him and his crew get back on the transport and they're ready to head home. And as they're sitting there about to take off, uh, the ranking officer on the base comes and says, we need you guys to get off the plane. We've got some wounded soldiers. They need this transport right now. So they, of course, get off of the plane, and they're waiting there, and they, they put the wounded soldiers on, they take off, and the, uh, the officer says, now, uh, I promise you guys we're going to get you guys on the next flight. And so Simon Sinek is thinking to himself, well, that, okay, we can wait a couple of hours till the next one comes. And he's like, when is the next one? And he said, Tuesday, which was four days away. And Simon says that uh, when he heard that, like, he just lost all energy. His whole body just went limp, and he just went, there's no way I can wait four days here. He, he was already overwhelmed, and all of the energy, he says, just left his body. And all, he became so preoccupied. In fact, he writes this, I became preoccupied with my happiness, my safety, and my comfort. He became intensely preoccupied with his comfort, with his safety. He began acting out of character. He started making demands to the ranking officer on the base which, you know, I've never been in the military, but for those of you that are, I've heard that doesn't go very well. <laughs> and he realized he was becoming something that he didn't want to become. He was actually becoming a version of himself that he despised. And he writes this, I didn't care who had to go out of their way or twist themselves in a knot to get me what I wanted. My happiness, my safety, my comfort. He was exhausted. He hadn't slept couldn't sleep. He was overwhelmed. He was stressed. He was constantly consumed with this idea that they were gonna, uh, there was going to be another rocket attack. They were going to attack the base. He was going to die. His family would never hear from him again. He, they would never know where he was at. And this is just playing over and over again in his mind. He just convinced himself of this. And so he says at a certain point, he just gave up. He ran out of options. And he thought to himself, if I'm going to be stuck, then I'm going to be useful. If I'm going to be stuck, then I'm going to be useful. And so he just went to the nearest, uh, the, the nearest officer and said, how, how can I help? What do you need me to do? 
If you need me to sweep floors, I'll sweep floors. If you need me to carry that box from there to there, I'll do that. Uh, he started giving more talks over the next four days for free. We're not charging them. And him and his crew started doing a bunch more and started hanging out with the soldiers. And uh, he started just serving wherever I can. He just, he determined this. I want to just serve those who are serving others. And if I'm going to be stuck, I'm going to at least be useful. And all of a sudden, something switched in his mind. All of a sudden, his, his fear was gone. The disdain for his circumstances disappeared, and he found purpose in serving others. And here's what he writes. If there's one practice I have found that has profoundly changed my life, made me a better friend, a better brother, a better son, it's that I wake up in the morning and try to see what I can do. What can I do in my sphere and with my skill set that will benefit something I care about and somebody I love? Whether Simon Sinek realizes it or not, he's describing the way of the towel. He's describing the way of Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, then we walk into every situation, whether we are, uh, you know, you like how it's playing out or not, you walk into every situation with a towel. How can I serve? But many of us are walking in, and we're not armed with a towel. Many of us walk into situations armed with our rights, armed with our authority, armed with our position, armed with sort of our education, our rank. But here's what you need to know about the way of the towel. The way of the towel is the way of humility. The way of the towel is the way of humility. It is a way to say, look, I'm coming into this situation, and even though I might have authority, I'm not going to use my authority to get what I want. Instead, I'm coming under to serve you. Let me remind you what Jesus taught through his example. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. Jesus knew he had all authority. He knew that he had come from God, he's going to return to God, and Jesus knew that everything was under his authority. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. Then he says this, I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. Can you imagine what your family would look like if you just decided to live this way? Can you imagine if in every situation if you're fam in your family you just decided, you know what, instead of doing what I can do to get for myself, what if in every situation I just said, how can I serve others? You want to know what one of the most powerful phrases around your home could be? How can I help? How can I help? That's a phrase that can change the dynamic of your whole entire household. Hey, how can I help? What if in your marriage you just decided, you know what, I'm going to live the way of the towel. What if in your marriage you just decided, I'm going to do everything I can. You wake up every day and you go, what could I do to serve my spouse today? What could I do, instead of trying to get something from them, what could I do to actually provide for them, give to them, come under and serve them somehow? What would it look like today for me to serve my spouse? What would that do to your marriage? I mean, that would just be a powerful thing. Can you imagine? How, how would that affect the way that you drive? No, no, no. Merge. Just merge. Go ahead. Instead of, yeah, I see you, and I will wreck my car before I let you in this lane, buddy. And I'll tell you something. When you speak from an area of weakness, you never run out of material. Because that's me. I'm in a hurry to get things done. I rush and rush until life's no fun. All I really got to do is live and die, and I'm in a hurry, and I don't know why. For you country lovers, there you go. 
What would it look like if a whole group of people just said, you know what, in our driving, we're just going to drive the way of the towel and we're going to let other people go first and we're going to serve others. What would it look like in your neighborhood? What if you showed up to work like that? What if you showed up to work with the towel and every single day you just said, you know what, how can I serve my company? How can I serve my organization? How can I serve my boss? How can I serve my coworkers? I mean, can you think about what, what would happen in your workplace if one of you or several of you decided we're going to do this, we're just going to live this way? Every day this is going to be present in our minds. We're going tr- to do our best to view the world through this lens, through the way of the towel, and say, how can I serve? How can I put others first? Can you imagine what your neighborhood would look like if it was constantly, what can I do for? How can I serve? How can I help? Could you imagine how that would change our community if a whole group of us who, who are followers of Jesus just determined everywhere that we go, we're going to do our best to serve other people, not to get what we can, but to serve others and put them first and lift them up? Can you imagine how that would change our community in drastic ways? Bottom line, the way of the towel is a life of showing people that they matter. It's one of the reasons that we encourage people to join a serving team here at Westbridge Church. And here's why. You're like, I know, because, you, because we have tons of kids and we need to fill all the classrooms with adults. Well, yeah, I mean, we, we definitely want adults in the classrooms. That's pretty important. But it's also, I can't tell you how many times I talk to somebody who's on a serving team somewhere, whether they're, uh, honestly, whether they're waving to people, whether they're greeting people, whether they're making coffee, whether they're in a kid's room, whether they're behind a camera, whether they're doing something midweek here in the building. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people and they go, I love it. Like, I I get to serve and, and yeah, I'm glad that it helps, but it does more for me than it does for the people I feel like I'm serving. Because it, it helps me, it's such a practical way to take your focus off of yourself and be a part of serving others. In every situation, it's about taking the attitude of Jesus and putting others ahead of myself. But that requires humility. If you ever want to be more humble, just start living the way of the towel and doing whatever you can to show people around you that they matter. And we believe in this so deeply because we, as we anticipate Easter, the sacrificial love of Jesus on the cross actually says to every single person, you matter. And if people matter to God, then they really ought to matter to us. And we should show them that they matter to us. And we do that through the way of the towel. And we pick up and we serve. So today, as we close, I want to invite you to agree with this prayer of humility. It's not original with me. It's actually an ancient prayer that was written centuries ago. Uh, but I want to read it to you. And I want to invite you to adopt this prayer this week during your Lenten journey. And we'll put it out uh, this week on our social media. And you can uh, continue to use this prayer. It goes like this. Deliver me, Jesus, from the desire of being admired above others, from the desire of being praised more than you, from the desire of being accepted by people more than you, from the desire of being consulted, from the desire of being well-known, from the desire of being honored. Deliver me, Jesus, from the fear of being criticized, from the fear of being ridiculed, from the fear of being humiliated, from the fear of being falsely accused, from the fear of being disbelieved, from the fear of being forgotten. In Jesus' name, amen. It would be difficult for you to find a more politically incorrect prayer. But that's the way of the towel. We're called to be people who serve others. And this is the entire message of Jesus. The message of Jesus, that's why we celebrate Easter, again, because it is not a a sort of religion thing. Because religion is this. Hey, here's all the stuff. Because you screwed up, human. So here's the things you need to do to get to God. That's religion. That's not what Easter is about. Easter is the reminder that this is the story of all the things that God did to get to us. 
And God doesn't say, hey, come to me, come to me, come to me, and, and get some stuff right, and then you can come to me, and then you'll be worthy. The scriptures tell us and remind us over and over again, Easter is this reminder that Jesus descended to us. He came to us in our brokenness, in our mess, and he took on the form of a servant, and he lowered himself. Why? Because you don't win the hearts of people through might and power and coercion and force. You do it when you pick up the towel and you serve. And so he came into our world. He allowed himself to be put to death. And even in his dying breath, he prays, Father, forgive them about the people who are executing him. And then his body is laid in a tomb, and according to multiple eyewitness accounts, he rose from the dead. And that means death is not the end. Death has been defeated, and you and I have been invited to be a part of God's family. And it isn't based on your past it isn't about that. God says, it doesn't matter. Your past doesn't matter. It's not about your, the mess that you bring with you. It's not the baggage you bring with you. It's because of who God is that he comes to us and invites us. And if you've never said yes to that invitation, I want to invite you to do that. To say, God, I want to put my trust in you and I want to begin to follow you. I want to enter into this thing called the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, and participate with that even now. And so if you've never said yes to that, you're invited. So whether you're watching online here in the room, you can agree, you can say yes to that invitation by just agreeing with this prayer as we close. God, please forgive my sins. Forgive me for the times that I've walked away from you, and I thank you that you never walk away from me. And I thank you that this isn't about me doing a bunch of stuff to somehow get to you, but that this is just uh, all the things you've done to come to me and meet me where I'm at. And so I pray, make me your son, make me your daughter, and help me to follow your way of living life as best as I know how from this moment on. I, I want to trust you, and I want to follow you. I give you, God, I want to surrender the steering wheel of my life to your way of living. And God, I pray for every one of us who are doing our best to follow you on a daily basis. May we be people who pick up the towel. May we be people who, in our daily lives, find ways to serve others. And as we do, may we be a church community that continually points people to the love and the grace of Jesus. Pray this in your name. Amen.